0: A quick handshake between two world leaders is going viral. Former Secretary of State John Kerry seen shaking hands with Venezuelan leader Nicolás Maduro. In a video posted by an Associated Press reporter, Kerry is seen smiling with Maduro before shaking hands a second time, both there for the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Egypt. The handshake itself less than two seconds, but the complicated history between the two countries they represent goes back decades.
1: Welcome, welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for being here with us. I'm your host this hour, Nana Jumpy, filling in by invitation for my sister and comrade, the host of Sojourner Truth, Margaret Prescott. That was a clip, of course, talking about the historic meeting between John Kerry, climate czar for the United States, and President Maduro of Venezuela at the United Nations Climate Change Conference being held in Egypt. We live in the global world. We are all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, Communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines.
2: For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onested, the head of the Western Alliance, NATO, and president of Poland are rejecting claims that a missile strike that hit a Polish farmland and killed two people Tuesday was a deliberate attack by Russia, a claim Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky made. Jan Stoltenberg, head of NATO, says Ukraine's likely launched the Soviet-era projectile as it was fending off a Russian air assault that savaged its power grid.
1: Our preliminary analysis suggests that the incident was likely caused by a Ukrainian air defense missile fired to defend Ukrainian territory against Russian cruise missile attacks. But let me be clear, this is not Ukraine's fault. Russia bears ultimate responsibility as it continues It's illegal war against Ukraine.
2: The missile came down Tuesday as Russia launched missiles and exploding drones. Poland said the missile was Russian-made. U.S. President Joe Biden said it was unlikely Russia fired it. Three officials from the U.S. said preliminary assessments suggest it was fired by Ukrainian forces at an incoming Russian missile. Authorities say nearly half of the Kiev region has lost power, and more than a dozen other regions, among them Lviv in the west, Kharkiv in the northeast, reported power outages affecting cities that together have millions of people. The U.S. strongly condemned Russia's new missile attacks on Ukraine, saying they appear to have hit residential buildings, the capital of Kiev, and elsewhere in the country. In the U.S., former President Donald Trump has announced he will run for president again in 2024.
3: In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my
4: candidacy for president of the United States.
2: Trump is hoping to move on after voters rejected many of his high-profile candidates, including Mehmet Oz in the Pennsylvania Senate race. Trump, though, defended his record, claiming 232 of the candidates he endorsed won. Only 22 lost. And he said the country can't take four more years of a Biden administration. Trump may have to stave off a long list of potential challengers, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's cruised to a landslide reelection victory and is now being urged by some in his party to run for president as well. Democrats are hailing their win of the Senate and Arizona's governor's race. Despite clear signs Republicans will take the House chamber, Alex Gonzalez reports.
0: We chose sanity over chaos. And we chose unity over division. We chose a better Arizona. And we chose democracy.
4: Democrat Katie Hobbs is projected to win the race for Arizona governor, defeating her Republican opponent, former TV news anchor Carrie Lake. The high-profile race was marked by sharp rhetoric by Lake, an election denier, and protesters contesting the results, which became more clear a week after Election Day, as vote totals from the state's most populous counties came in. Hobbs is the state's first Democratic governor since Janet Napolitano in 2006. In celebrating his party's midterm win to retain a narrow majority in the U.S. Senate, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Democrats are going to continue working across party lines but will stay true to the party's principles. What happened last night with Kerry Lake, that's proof positive that this MAGA stuff doesn't
3: work. She was a great communicator. She's still lost in a purple state.
4: Schumer added he hopes Republicans and Democrats can continue to work in a bipartisan way and make compromises when possible. Despite several races across the country still waiting to be called, it's likely the GOP will gain control of the House. I'm Alex Gonzalez for Pacifica Network and Public News Service.
2: Senate Democrats are moving ahead with legislation to protect same-sex and interracial marriage today. The bill has gained momentum since a Supreme Court decision overturned the federal right to abortion. And an opinion at the time from Justice Clarence Thomas suggested reassessing same-sex marriage rights. In the Senate, they will need at least 10 Republicans to vote with all Democrats to advance the legislation. It would ensure same-sex and interracial marriages are legally recognized nationwide. The climate change minister of Nauru has denounced wealthy nations for doing little to help his Pacific country deal with the climate crisis. His comments come as a COP27 climate summit in Egypt grapples with how to adapt to a warming planet and pay for the damage climate-fueled weather disasters are already causing. Eileen Alfonderry reports. United Nations climate official Simon Steele said a newly published report on climate finance estimated just how much funding is needed.
5: The report identifies the need for a breakthrough and a new roadmap on climate finance seeking to mobilize a trillion dollars per year in external finance that will be needed by 2030.
2: While the nations of the world seem unlikely to come up with the one trillion dollars or more needed yearly to address the climate crisis, they are coming up with double that amount for military spending. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, world military expenditures topped trillion last year. The U.S. spent about $800 billion alone on its military. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Althandere. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio.
1: And that was the news headlines. So thrilled today to be joined by guests who will be sharing information and giving us deep reasons to think and probe from around the United States, and the globe. We'll be joined shortly by Cliff Albright, Executive Director of Black Voters Matter, Serene Shabaya, Executive Director of the National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild, as well as Jose Luis Seja, who is a news reporter from Venezuela Analysis. But before we go to them, I want to give an update on a very serious situation that is happening with our sister Brittany Griner. As many of you know, Brittany Griner is a star athlete with the WNBA, but also a spouse, a loved one, a daughter. And she was just sentenced by Russian courts to nine and a half years in a penal colony. We are going to be talking about this a little bit further in the show, but wanted to make sure that we took some time to think about Brittany Griner and all of the information, the noise, the talk that we've been hearing over the past month and two months as we've been going into these elections Her story and the story of what has happened to her seems to have gotten buried, and we certainly don't want that to happen. We know that it is very difficult to be a Black person anywhere in this world. We know that it's very difficult to be a Black queer woman everywhere in this world. We know that in both the United States and Russia, that we are dealing with countries that have not shown a lot of love to Black women and have not shown a lot of love to Black queer women. We're very concerned about her situation. We're hoping that her attorneys and her families, who as of now have not really been able to locate her, will soon hear from her. And most importantly, we're hoping that she will soon be freed. We wanted to, again, take this moment and ask all of us to take this moment to be able to put some positive energy out for Brittany Griner, to take the time to think about the kind of pressure that we can apply so that we can make sure that Brittany Griner is allowed to come back home to her family members and to her loved ones. We want to make sure that this story is not buried. We want to make sure that her life is not buried. We want to make sure that we lift up that her life matters. And so we want to take this time again to talk about, to lift up Brittany Griner, to lift up the issue that she's facing, to lift up the fact that she doesn't need to be anywhere imprisoned um, to think about those folks who are imprisoned here right in the united states similarly for marijuana related offenses and to just recommit ourselves to ending prisons ending jails and making sure that no one is placed in a cage again abolition now Thank you so very much for taking that time with me. And now we'll go to our guests. So our guests right now, so glad to be joined by Cliff Albright. Cliff Albright is a co-founder of Black Voters Matter Fund, an organization dedicated to expanding Black voter engagement and increasing progressive power through movement building. He also hosts a weekly radio show in Atlanta, and has served as an instructor of African-American studies at several universities. It is on and popping in Georgia again, and in a somewhat unexpected nail-biter, Senator Warnock and his contender, Herschel Walker, will be in a runoff election in December. Thank you so very much, Cliff, for joining us to let us know what we got to know, what we got to plan, and what we got to do.
3: Hey, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk.
1: So much energy and work that was put into getting Stacey Abrams, the Senator Raphael Warnock, elected as governor of Georgia and senator, respectively. We know that Black Voters Matter and so many other organizations on the ground did a lot of work to turn out the vote. What happened? And what do we learn that we can take forward?
3: Yeah, so, you know, I think there's a lot. Of things that happened, right? Obviously, we're we're disappointed in the results in on the the government side of the election, right? You know, we we obviously would have loved to have Stacey Abrams become the first Black woman governor in the country, long overdue for that, right? And so, uh, but but more importantly, even beyond the symbolism, right? Just to have a governor that would actually be responsive to to the needs of of Black folks across the georgia and, and the entire state of georgia. So so what happened, right? And and then in terms of the senate race, you know, we would have loved to have been able to uh not not have to do a runoff for for this election, right? Um in fact, every day I'm looking at a video of Herschel Walker speak, I'm I'm just amazed that we're even in this that we're in this situation of having to do of of having to do a runoff when you got somebody <laughs> that can't even complete a full sentence. Um and so, but here we are. So what what happened? And I think a couple of things happened, right? I think, um, one, we got to recognize that this was the first statewide major election in Georgia to take place since the passing of the voter suppression bill, right? A lot of people are just kind of discounting that, like, oh, what happened in Georgia? Like, think about the three states where we're getting the biggest what happened questions, right? What happened in Florida, what happened in Georgia? What happened in Texas? Right. With, with Beto O'Rourke's campaign, people are asking what happened in those three states as if those weren't the same three states that passed the worst voter suppression bills that we saw anywhere in the country. And so part of what happened in each of those countries, you know, it reminds me of people after 2016 when when uh, the Orange Man won. And people were like, oh, my God, what happened as if 2016 wasn't the first presidential election that happened after the gutting of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court in 2013. And so, you know, in all these analyses, we've got to keep that in mind. That doesn't mean that every vote was suppressed, right? Obviously, millions of people were still able to vote, but they don't have to suppress every vote. All they have to do is be able to suppress on the margins. All they have to be able to do is suppress 1%, 2% through the combination of making it harder to vote by mail, making it harder to vote in person, making it harder to vote by provisional, reducing the number of days of, of early voting. We'll talk more about that in a second, in regards to the runoff, but the the first thing that happened is 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 voter suppression, right? I think the other thing that happens is that we did not see as much support and investment amongst the black organizing progressive groups, you know, the voting rights and voter mobilization groups in Georgia. We saw a lot more support in 2020, and and for obvious reasons, right? We, we you know people thought that that the end all be all of democracy was just about Trump, and once once Trump was out of office, some people felt like, oh, we're all good now. No, right? (laughs) That's not the case, you know, but, and, and then of course in 2020 we had the whole um, summer of up of uprisings related to police violence, and we saw a lot more donations into into you know some of these efforts. That didn't happen this time around. I'm not even just talking about our organization. I'm talking across the board, and so um, that that has an impact, right? When you don't invest in the groups that have these authentic relations that do this work every day, when you don't invest in such groups, when you just send money to the candidates and you think that that's going to get it done, that doesn't get it done. And so you know that was the second thing that happened, and the third thing I'll say I'll just say this real quick people want to talk about like what happened with black voter turnout people want to talk about like the the so-called black male problem like what are black men doing here's the conversation we really need to be having what are white women doing <laughs> you know and particularly in georgia because at the end of the day we saw um a, a movement across the country in many states there were abortion rights um they were upheld through ballot initiatives as well as through you know voting for particular candidates that didn't happen in Georgia. White women in Georgia did what white women often do, which is they chose the side of white supremacy and, and white, you know, patriarchy. And so, and that's gotta be a discussion. In fact, across the country, more white, white women voted more conservatively in this election than they did two years ago. So after four years of Trump, after after uh, the Dobbs decision, after everything that we've seen over the past couple of years, they in fact doubled down on white supremacy and voting voting conservatively that's got to be just as much of a discussion uh as like these questions around like what black voters are doing and what what black men are doing and and all of that we can't control that right and so we're going to continue to stay focused on our community and what we can do but that needs to be a discussion that that the media and 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 white progressives need to have with, with their cousins
1: Absolutely. I've been telling folks if every election is a multiracial democracy group assignment in the United Mm, States mm. and, you know, everyone gets their part. Black folks Mm. do our part. Okay, Mm -hmm, we get the assignment mm -hmm. where we have the least amount of resources, but we're asked to lead the assignment. We Mm -hmm. lead the assignment. We do the Mm -hmm. assignment. We mm-hmm. look around and it's like, what is the rest of y'all doing?
3: That's right. Right. That's what is right. the rest we, of y'all we, doing?
1: Because you are doing not the assignment not that the was assignment. about multi-racial democracy. When we mm-hmm. do great on the exam, you're high-fiving us. <laughs> when we That's don't right. do great on the exam, you're like why black people didn't do their part. It's like, excuse That's right.
3: me. That's right. We, we setting up the study group. We bring in the snacks. We doing the outline. We taking the notes, <laughs> you know, we got exactly. the, the highlights and all that. And then the test call, and y'all want to be like, well, what'd y'all do?
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a serious conversation that we need to have. I mean, I know before I talk more about the center race, I know, for example, with Black Alliance for Just Immigration, Baji, the org that I lead, we got zero dollars. We went from getting money in every state in which we did civic engagement in 2020 to zero dollars, mm-hmm. other than what we got, thank goodness, from Black Voters Matter Um, to be able to do this work. And that made no sense whatsoever. But as you said, those investments weren't there. And that's a lesson to take forward, the investments in doing better on that group assignment. Um, Let's turn now to the Senate race. So Mm. folks are saying, they're posting, they're tweeting, we don't need Georgia, we got Mm. Nevada, we good, Mm. yep, yep. Mm. Um, What do you say to those folks? You know that are um, are basically saying we won, quote unquote with around the we, you know, it's over, and different. Democrats have taken over the Senate.
3: Right, right. The we one, like you said, what you mean by we, right? Because the same state that folks were high fiving, just like you said, high fiving and celebrating two years ago, told, "Ooh, Georgia, black folks in Georgia, y'all saved democracy," right? Uh, and and now it's like, oh, we don't need y'all, <laughs> right? We we got the majority without y'all. So one, and and I think most importantly, right? It's it's just outright disrespectful because it's really a matter of like, what what did the folks, what did the people in Georgia, from our perspective? Black Black folks in particular, what do we what do we deserve in terms of leadership? Do we deserve somebody that actually knows how to lead that that can speak to our issues, right? Or or do we need somebody who self admittedly has lied about any number of things, including walking around for, with a party city badge, acting like he's in the FBI <laughs> and, and, and working for the police? So you know, so so first and foremost, George is important because we who live here are important, right? And we deserve you know adequate. Uh, representation. But, But we understand that there's some folks that don't get that. And so let's look at it just from a pure political strategy perspective. There is a difference between 51 seats and 50 seats, right? There is a difference. One of the first things that frustrated many of us after the last uh, the election, last election when, when Georgia won the two Senate seats, and we thought that that gave Democrats a majority, is one of the first things that happened is when they started giving out party assignments, right, I mean committee assignments within the Senate, that they had to have this so-called party, this power sharing agreement. Because the the argument was that technically y'all aren't the majority. You got the majority in terms of a tie-breaking vote, right, from the vice president, um, which Georgia also helped make possible. But they say, well, you don't really have a majority of the Senate. It's 50-50, and therefore committee assignments were done in a way where there's power sharing. There's not an outright majority, which on some committees has brought progress to a halt, including – In the Judiciary Committee that deals with these federal appointments. Right. We if we don't if we didn't know before how important these federal judgeships were, we ought to be crystal clear about that right now. Right. From the Supreme Court down to some of these other federal courts. And so the point is that with 51 seats right, that you don't have to have that power shoot. 51 is an outright majority. It's not a tie-breaking majority. It's an outright majority. That would allow those committee assignments to be set up in a, in a different kind of way and allow more progress, including more legislation, to be able to move more more quickly through those committees. So that's one issue. The, the other issue is this. We know that there's not really 50, <laughs> There's not really alignment on all 50 of those seats that Democrats hold, right? We know right. that we got Manchinima out there, right? Manchin and Cinema, I call him Manchinima. We got Manchinima out there that has been blocking <laughs> progress on a range of issues, including voting rights, including abortion rights, and ending up including Build Back Better, right? And so, which which is which is the the, the legislation that includes more social investments, right, and more investments in people versus just the investments in in hard infrastructure, all. Those things were blocked because there wasn't a real aligned Democratic majority. 51 seats would bring us closer to making them irrelevant. Two seats would have been ideal, you know, two seats. And, and most of those candidates that were running in those battleground states like Fetterman and, and Mandela Barnes and, and Sherry Beasley, they had committed to being willing to modify the filibuster to get action on issues like voting rights and abortion rights and, and some other issues. So getting those two extra seats would have been ideal, Um, you know, not ideal, but better. But getting one gets us closer to that. It makes it harder for those two to, to continue to hold all of us hostage because they uh, are, are really just lukewarm on in terms of their policies. And it also gives you some protection in case of in case of what, if if, if Manchin or cinema winds up doing what many people think that they, they, they really needed to do from the beginning, which is that they might wind up flipping parties, right? At any moment, Manchin could wake up and be like, you know what, I think I'm a caucus with the Republicans, right? And so having 51 seats gives you cushion against against them being able to continue to, to be obstructionists on some of the issues that Black folks care about. We want to get voting rights. We want to get action on police accountability, whether it's the George Floyd Act or some other version of police accountability we want some of the things that's in build back better we can't get them until we actually have a democratic caucus a complete caucus that's willing to or let me say this because i don't because i don't i don't want to leave the other side off the hook right because at the end of the day all those things we could act on if there were just 10 Republicans that actually had some sense, 10 Republicans that actually lived on earth one and not on earth two, 10 Republicans that actually would be willing to put aside the election denying and the white supremacy and just take a stand on issues from voting rights, abortion rights, to even gun reform, right? Because again, we just saw in Virginia, uh, um, some more Black lives lost. Because of the scourge of gun violence, we can't get action on that issue until we get a Senate that is willing to um, willing to, 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 to move on that and, and modify the filibuster and so on and so forth. So I don't want to put I don't want to give the other side a break because none of them are doing the right thing. But we also got to be critical of the fact that we got two at least two people in the Democratic caucus that, you know, just are not consistently on the side of the people.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this, uh, part of the group assignment is history, including recent history, right? And knowing that there's folks that are not going to roll with the rest of the Democrats. And part of it is just basic math, like 50 mm-hmm. on one side and 50 on the other side is not a majority. And right. as we've seen for the past two years, just having Vice President Harris as a tiebreaker doesn't mean that we're getting comprehensive immigration reform, voting rights, et cetera. That, that right. in itself is not enough. I mean, the few minutes that we have left, want to talk about this Senate runoff um, in Georgia. Last time, uh, you know, we had until January, right? And, and, And we went into January 2021. And so, so many of us that were doing this voter engagement work were able to jump in and do some more work to get out the vote and, you know, make sure people didn't get tired and that they kept the energy up and made it happen. Now we have this really truncated time. So can you talk They
3: did other things like shortening the early vote period from three weeks down to just one week. In fact, really just five days. and so that's that's what they that's what they did, and that's why we're in this the shortened period, which we have to understand. But real quick, but with that said, we're still sending a message: we won't black down, right? That we're going to go out, we're going to do what we do. We're, we're we're texting people, we're we're phoning people, we're knocking on doors, we're doing caravans through our neighborhoods. We're even doing a series of events around Wakanda. We're doing we're buying out some theaters and doing some some Wakanda Forever screenings. We're calling it Wakanda Votes Forever. And so we're doing some screenings, but we're not just there to have fun before the screen. We're going to turn it into a big voter mobilization activity and have people do text banking and getting voter information and spreading the word, right? So we're going to do everything we can to use this four-week period um, in order to do what we do, which is to have honest conversations with our folks, to pull more people into process and build power. And some of these things are things that people can do no matter where you are. You can get connected with us. You can do text banking with us. You can do phone banking with us. And of course, you can always help to raise those resources that you and I were just talking about a few minutes ago. And. And and I can give you the information on how folks can can find us and able to do all of that stuff.
1: Absolutely. Please share that information because we know there's not a lot of time between now and this runoff. So where do people go if they want to jump in (laughs) with you?
3: Yep. They can follow us on social media, on all platforms. It's Black Voters MTR. Black Voters MTR. That's Twitter, Facebook, IG, TikTok. Um, You can text us. Text WE MATTER. Text WE MATTER to 25225. That's 25225. And the message is WE MATTER, one word. And that'll get you connected with us on our texting. Um, It'll it'll send you links to our link tree. You can go to our volunteer. Actually, that's probably even more direct. Instead of WE MATTER, you can text VOLUNTEER text volunteer to 25225 and that'll get you information about how you can volunteer with us Uh, and, and and so either one of those things texting volunteer going to our social media you'll be able to get information about all of our all of our activities our volunteer links and how you can best plug in
1: excellent 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 always good to talk with you whether it is on the phone in person on the radio so appreciate you comrade thank you so very much Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day.
3: Thank you. And thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. All right. We will be back to dive in to talk about marijuana pardons and stripping citizenship after this short station break.
3: No matter how hard it seems, when times are rough and tough, don't let go, just go with the flow, let your seat till it grows, patience the virtue and dreams come true, believe in yourself then this can happen to you, man, no one, one man, you know what I'm saying, Grasp the master plan and grasp it in your hand, but hold it tight, it's to keep your life, don't let it slip for which or beat in tight, back the jealousy people or the evil that thinks you're incompetent or not equal. A better
1: this. don't get caught up in the superstitions in the 1990s. People stand behind you, don't get played like buck, weed, or sign. Just hold on tight and fight with all your might. If you call again, call again and I'll answer. Oh, yeah, call again and I'll answer. Before, heard some more folks talking about you like it was the Lord. Call again and I'll answer, oh yeah. Call again and I'll answer. I say
3: freedom, you must hang out amongst the stars. It's kind of hard for you in a world
1: like ours. Freedom, freedom by... Liz Wright. This is Nana Jumpy, today's guest host of Sojourner's Truth. That was Freedom by Liz Wright, which we are dedicating today to Brittany Griner, our sister, WNBA superstar, Black queer woman who was sentenced to nine years in a Russian prison for allegedly entering the country with vape cartridges with a small amount of cannabis oil that normally gets folks in Russia a ticket. Griner's lawyers indicated that they do not know where she is being held at this moment. The Biden administration claims that her chances for release are improved now that the midterm elections are over, but we've certainly heard that before. Sounds like a Black queer woman being used as a political pawn by two countries who don't really care about Black people. Free BG. Our next guest is all too familiar with the criminalization of migrants, including Black migrants, right here in the U.S. of A. Serene Shabaya is executive director of the National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild. She's a longtime immigrant rights advocate, who focuses on combining litigation, advocacy, and public campaign strategies to defend and advance the rights of immigrant communities of color. She has litigated several high-profile cases alongside and on behalf of people impacted by the Muslim ban, family separation, discriminatory police practices, and immigration detention and enforcement. Thank you so very much for joining us, Serene. Really glad to have you on.
5: Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure, Nana.
1: Understandably, so many people were so pleased with President Biden's executive order, pardoning those who have been convicted of federal simple marijuana convictions. National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild and the National Immigration Justice Center sent a letter signed by several organizations, including Baji, to President Biden asking him to expand that executive order. Please talk to us about that order, just in case there's folks that haven't heard anything other than, you know, pardon for weed, and that's about it. And um, why you've sent that urgent request. What do you hope that President Biden will do?
5: Thank you, Nana. So the executive order essentially pardons um, people who have simple marijuana possession charges, just federal charges. um, And it extends explicitly to people who are U.S. citizens or who are lawful permanent residents uh, who are also lawfully present in the United States at the time of the conviction. And so by its own terms, it only applies to simple, to federal simple marijuana possession charges um, or convictions And also by its own terms, it specifically excludes people who are uh, undocumented immigrants or people who have different kinds of statuses that are not Lawful permanent residence. So, I mean, I think as you know, Nana, and probably as your listenership knows, there are many, many different statuses that are, you could be here as a student on a visa. You could be a refugee, an asylee. All of those statuses were excluded from the pardon by its own terms. And the pardon only applied to U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents. And I mean, if we can sort of back up for a second, the pardon process has generally been very not inclusive to immigrants, very hostile to immigrants in different ways. People who are outside the U.S. cannot even apply for a pardon state and and kind of, you know, uh, local pardons are frequently not treated as automatically having effect in immigration court. And immigrants are generally left out in different ways, not just pardons, but also criminal legal system reforms broadly, where, you know, for years and years, like, for example, in the Obama years, there were these sentences. Sentencing reforms that happened that resulted in many, many early releases um, for people who had nonviolent drug convictions. And, you know, 20, about 25% of the people who uh, got the early releases, got the sentencing modification were immigrants. And for those people, instead of being able to go back home and rejoin their families and restart their lives, they were simply transferred to ICE detention and none of the advocacy to try to get them released or get prosecutorial discretion worked. And they were just, you know, deported even people who had very longstanding ties to the United States. So this is sort of a familiar problem in the immigration context. And, you know, you, you, Nana and and I and and uh, NIJC worked together on uh, reaching out early to the Biden administration in 2021 to say, if you're looking at the pardon process, you really need to include immigrants on the front end and you really need to engage with people who are immigration advocates who really understand how these things play out day to day to ensure that immigrants are not excluded and sure enough that didn't happen <laughs> and this pardon was issued and and you know I shouldn't understate I mean it's not nothing it's obviously a huge deal it's a categorical pardon that that is going to benefit a lot of people but as with other situations it does leave immigrants out in a couple of different ways mainly that it excludes a lot of immigrants but then also That it's somehow, that it's often not entirely clear how, what effect pardons have on immigration consequences. And uh, the pardon itself doesn't really address that in any explicit way.
1: Yeah. I mean, whenever there's something for relief that makes immigrants feel like, okay, I'm going to avoid the collateral consequences, right, of these convictions, I'm going to be deported. Um, they rush to try to figure out what's happening and just heartbreaking to talk to folks about how, no, you know, the, when they when the president was talking about, avoid, you know, keeping people from having to experience collateral consequences such as impacts on their housing, impacts on their employment. Clearly, deportation was not one of the collateral consequences that was thought about. Um, but that also includes people trying to get back. So we know that, as you indicated, if 25 percent of the people who were released were um, deported, that this news also makes them feel like, hey, maybe they have a chance at getting back with their families. What does that look like?
5: Yes. So just as in, you know, in the Obama era, immigrants were left out. I think this time again, people are left out. So if you have already been deported this particular pardon doesn't apply to you. And that is very, very difficult to hear and to know. I mean, sometimes there are other options to explore, but generally speaking, when someone is deported for a criminal conviction, it is very, very difficult for that person to come back. And it's also true if you're deported not for a criminal conviction. I mean, the immigration system just makes it so prohibitively difficult to be able to really do the very complicated litigation and requests and et cetera that would be required to bring you back. And so. Unfortunately, this particular pardon at least in its current form does not apply to people who have already been deported. That being said, I do think that the Biden administration really does have a unique chance to expand the scope of the pardon to clarify that it applies to all immigrants, not just lawful permanent residents, and also to clarify that the pardon, you know, applies to people who have already been deported and would enable people to come back and also people who are currently in the United States, uh, not to have immigration consequences. Um, you know, I mean, I think like as with everything in the immigration enforcement context, the administration frequently, very aggressively pursues people, for example, who have simple marijuana convictions, whether federal or state or local, and around 45,000 people ended up being deported just for marijuana related, um, convictions in in prior years. And so the administration really does have a unique chance. And this is why we wrote this letter that was joined by by Baji and by hundreds of organizations, or not hundreds, like uh, 130 organizations or so that joined this letter to basically ask the president to be consistent, right? Like, if you think that marijuana convictions are a racial justice issue, if you think that people really should not have their lives upended and destroyed by something like this, if you think that it's important to start to make these changes in the criminal legal system to enable people to not be targeted and, you know, uh, uh, kind of suffer these devastated con- devastating consequences, for consistency, you have to extend that to the immigration context in a much broader way. Because fundamentally, the immigrants who are being targeted by this are also black and brown right like the same racial justice issues the same disparate policing issues the same ways that they get into the system apply equally in the immigration side and so leaving any immigrants out is just very inconsistent and also continuing to pursue immigration enforcement against people who have for example state marijuana charges is also highly inconsistent with this pardon for simple marijuana possession um, so you know, I don't think it's the end of the road. I do think it's it's a, it's a good first step to pardon simple marijuana possession, but I think a lot more needs to happen there, both in terms of the immigration, like the administration's approach to immigrants who are already in removal proceedings, and also in terms of President President Biden's articulation of who this pardon actually applies to. Yeah, still some work to do and some pushing to do in
1: that arena. But as you indicated, the opportunities for the administration to really um, honor its conversations and its executive order with regard to racial equity in how this pardon is clarified um, is definitely there. We just have literally maybe a minute and a half left, but I wanted to ask you about denaturalization. Uh, another letter um, that we you are a part of and effort that you are a part of is to address this denaturalization office that was set up by President 44 and a half, um, but it's still in existence. And I think most people, when I bring this up to them, they are shocked that there is something called a denaturalization office that uh, and a process that strips people who have been naturalized of their citizenship. Why should all of us, whether we are migrants or citizens of this country, be concerned about a denaturalization office?
5: Yes. So denaturalization, I know we have very little time, but just uh, broadly is one of the most extreme immigration consequences that can possibly exist. Right. And just the fact that denaturalization exists in the immigration code essentially creates two classes of citizens. And so historically, I think administration after administration for decades and decades had used it very, very sparingly and only in the most extreme of cases, like against not war criminals, for example, Um, And the Supreme Court had also sort of narrowly interpreted denaturalization provisions generally to make sure that it's applied in a narrow way. Um, I mean, I personally don't think it should exist at all, but, you know, uh, for for what that's worth. But then the Trump administration changed that and built up like an entire office and began to really aggressively target people, especially from Arab, Muslim and South Asian communities, as well as others like Latinx immigrants and other immigrants um, for denaturalization. And at the beginning of the Biden administration, it looked like the administration was set to wind this down and really take a look at sort of how it was set up under the Trump administration and go back to the longstanding practice about only using denaturalization in the most egregious of cases. But as of right now, I mean, they did downgrade the office and sort of changed resource allocations a little bit so that it's now just a smaller unit. It's not a big office anymore. But they really have not made any significant or meaningful changes to Policy around denaturalization. Um, uh, They have so far maintained the previous administration's use of denaturalization as an enforcement tool, and that's really targeted and harmed Black and Brown immigrant communities in particular, as you well know, uh, Nana. And so, what we're trying to push the administration to do is to really make a meaningful change, because if they don't fully dismantle the full apparatus that the Trump administration put down, it's going to be very, very easy to abuse this you know, in future times, and there's nothing that sort of shakes a community's belonging and and sense of security in the country, like the threat of denaturalization. If you tell someone now you're a citizen, but I could go after you and make you not a citizen for, uh, you know, very spurious reasons, um, it just creates a lot of instability and insecurity. And that was, of course, the point for Trump. Um, But we really would like to see the Biden administration doing something significant there and essentially taking down the entire apparatus that was mounted by the prior administration and, um, you know, going back to longstanding practice about very sparingly, if ever, using that tool uh, in the enforcement toolbox.
1: Thank you so very much, Serene. We are out of time, sadly and unfortunately, certainly we will be asking you back. Please let people know how they can reach you or the National Immigration Project.
5: Thank you so much, Nana. Well, you can reach us online at nipnlg.org. Uh, you can also uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on Twitter with my full name. Um, and uh, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you for covering these very important topics. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. This is Nana Jumpy,
1: guest hosting for Margaret Prescott on Sojourner Truth. If you are on Facebook, you can look for Sojourner Truth and give them a like. We're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there, Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. On Twitter and Instagram, follow our handle at So Radio and visit our website for additional content at So True Radio. That's S O T R U E Radio. dot o r g
0: Just two years ago, the Department of Justice put a $15 million bounty on Maduro's head in connection to an effort to, quote, flood the United States with cocaine. Venezuela has also been the subject of scathing reports by the United Nations, listing over 3,000 human rights violations by Maduro's government, like torture. illegal executions.
4: Nicolás Maduro, uh, he interrupted uh, what was an ongoing meeting at COP27 to uh, engage Special Envoy Kerry, and this was very much an unplanned interaction.
0: Overnight, the State Department on the defensive
4: He was caught by surprise.
0: In an attempt to downplay the moment, they pointed to other clips of Maduro with other world leaders. This latest handshake adding to tension and an already terse conference.
3: No les importa cumplir los acuerdos que se han firmado, el Acuerdo de París.
0: Maduro taking shots at Europe and the U.S. over their commitment to fighting climate change. A big theme of the conference this year centers on who will foot the bill for climate-fueled disasters in developing countries.
3: Let's get real. It's only going to get worse.
0: Some world leaders calling on wealthy governments and oil companies to pay up when it does.
4: While they are profiting, the planet is burning.
0: And with Brazil's return to the conference and a possible appearance by Brazil's new president-elect, Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, otherwise known as Lula, the Brazilian leader campaigned on promises to protect the Amazon rainforest and restore Brazil, the world's lungs, as a leader on climate change. Heated conversations to be had on how to fight a warming climate, all while navigating political tensions
1: all while navigating political tensions. I could not help but really um, belly laugh when I saw Venezuelan President Maduro at the climate conference in Egypt, uh, walking up to John Kerry, all smiles, um, and another point shaking hands with President Macron who quickly talked about, you know, we got to talk and I'm going to be talking to the presidents of Argentina and Chile, too. And I mean, these conversations really show the difference between where the West and the U.S. has been with Venezuela um then and now. And I'm so glad to be able to talk about that irony with Jose Luis Granados Seja. Jose Luis Granado Sella is a journalist and political analyst based in Mexico City. He is a staff writer with Venezuela Analysis, covering regional and international issues. He is currently pursuing a master's degree in the defense and promotion of human rights at Universidad Autónoma de la Cuidad de Mexico. Thank you so very much for joining us. Really happy to be here. I couldn't help but laugh, I'm telling you, at the change of outward attitude, I'm not trying to say it's a change of politics, but a change of outward attitude and demeanor that Kerry, McCall, and other Western leaders show President Maduro at COP27, please help people understand what it is that we were
4: looking at. I think what the scenes we saw at the COP conference tell us is just... The total exhaustion of the so-called interim government strategy that was led by the United States and represented by this little-known lawmaker in Venezuela named Juan Guaido. This was always a plot to try to effect regime change in Venezuela, you know, to try to change a government that is at odds with Washington and in order to secure access to Venezuela's vast resources, right? I think it was particularly Interesting to see Macron, of all people, going out of his way. I noticed in the clip they talked, to, you know, we had the State Department trying to claim that it was Maduro interrupting. Well, in the case of Macron, it was Macron seeking him out when he previously hosted though personally receiving, you know, lauding his work to defend. So, you know, so-called work to defend democracy in Venezuela. And there he is seeking out Maduro The truth is is that Waido has lost pretty much every ally he has, and that includes the European Union, which now uh, no longer refers to him as, you know, the interim president, but rather an opposition leader, right? And I think this is probably most telling in terms of just how isolated Waido and the whole interim government strategy has actually become, was there was recently a vote at the OAS, uh, the Organization of American States, which is the regional body, which, you know, we here in Latin America, we call it the Ministry of Colonies of the United States. And there was a vote to decide who was going to represent Venezuela at this body if it was time to take away the recognition that they had given to Guaido, who was parading around calling himself president. And ultimately, the vote didn't pass because it requires a a special majority. But the only countries to vote in favor of Guaido were Canada, United States, Guatemala, and Paraguay. So, you know, what we're seeing is that the isolation of Venezuela is finally coming to an end, and that's really important. I think it's also important to say that this is due to, yes, the extraordinary efforts of Venezuela to resist, of the government of Venezuela to say that they will not allow a country to come in and declare who's the president, and totally trample the Venezuelan constitution, but also the Venezuelan people who've had to endure this circus show for years now of, of somebody pretending to be president and going around and, and and having serious consequences as a result, and obviously the the impact that this has had on the quality of life of Venezuelans, uh, you know, inside of the country of having to you know endure the punishing sanctions that are that are severely impacting the you know the quality of life for, for Venezuelans, and so you know we're already seeing results of this. The, the 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 end of the isolation of Venezuela is obviously a very important step, but what, you know, what needs to happen is the end of this illegal sanction regime that has been imposed on the country.
1: And so I want to ask about that. And, you know, this is one of my favorite topics, like what is happening, what, you know, the the shifting of power, the way in which people living in their countries are supporting the efforts to resist U.S. imperialism. So we definitely got to have you back to have this conversation because we don't have much time now. But what do you think are the next moves? Like what happens now? Um, you know, when you see Maduro and he's like, I'm going to be talking to the president of Argentina and Chile, you know, next week, and I'm sure he'll be talking to the president of Brazil after that. I mean, it's clear that they recognize that whether they like it or not, these are the governments that they're dealing with. What do you think will be the next moves?
4: Yeah, and the opposition themselves—they recognize that the, the scenario has changed. A lot has changed, and and a, a lot of that is also credit to all of the peoples of Latin America that have also decided to vote out these Washington-friendly governments that previously were in place. That lend that that led. Decided to participate in the charade and, and, recognized Juan Guaido as well. Uh, you know, we're already seeing the results of, of this, of the shift and, and in terms of what, what happens next. There was very recently, there was a meeting with Macron, with the president of Colombia, Petro, um, with the president of Argentina, Fernandez, uh, where they were talking directly face to face, the president of the Venezuela National Assembly, Chavista, Jorge Rodriguez, uh, with the opposition, uh, figure who represents the opposition in, in negotiations, Gerardo Blythe. Uh, you know, and there, Jorge Rodriguez was also really clear. No one negotiates with a gun to their head. You know, the the, the next steps are for the talks to resume. They're being hosted here in Mexico, uh, between the Venezuelan opposition and the government, to try to reach certain agreements and, and in order to uh, you know to to secure a situation. Um, where the sanctions can, can finally be lifted. You know, uh, that's, that's the key thing. So the United States, what they want and what they're trying to maintain is the, is that, uh, you know, the negotiations have to produce, uh, you know, they're not exactly clear, but some kind of result, uh, in order for, for the illegal sanctions to be lifted, right? Uh, and so until then, we're going to see these, this, you know, uh, the imposition of these sanctions, the support for, 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 the interim, the so-called interim government. I have to be clear about that, right? There's essentially sustained only by the United States State Department at this point, right? It basically exists to perpetuate a a bureaucracy and also importantly to facilitate the theft of the assets that belong rightfully to the Venezuelan people, right? And so now what we're seeing is is this push to have a negotiation in order to to hold election results. Now, what do I think is going to happen? I think the talks are going to eventually resume, Um, but I think the the U.S. is going to do everything it can to stall the lifting of its sanctions on Venezuela because They know that these sanctions are a huge issue of collective punishment on the Venezuelan people. If they lift the sanctions, if Venezuela is able to uh, participate in the oil market again, and there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the United States to have that, as we know, the the conflict in Ukraine is creating an energy crisis, particularly in Europe. And there isn't a lot of other places that are able to ramp up their production to be able to meet that demand. And so that's why you see people like Macron, you know, talking about the energy crisis. I've got to jump in said the same Sorry, thing. Sorry,
1: Jose Luis. Yeah, go go ahead. ahead.
4: Yeah, no, no. And so and so that's what we're seeing. And but I don't think they're going to do it because the lifting of sanctions would allow more revenue and would allow the government to start to rebuild everything that has been damaged or or, 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 or suffered, uh, you know, setbacks as a result mm-hmm. of of these this year long sanctions campaign. And obviously that would be good for the election that's coming because then the government can say, see it was the sanctions that made right. life difficult and right. now we're recovering. And so it's all its own electoral strategy to get the opposition back in power. Thank you so very
1: much, Jose Luis. Sorry to cut you off. I really want you to come back so we can talk more. We've got to go now, but thank you. Thank you so much. Please join us again and have a wonderful rest of your day.
4: You too. Happy to be joined you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: We are out of time, folks. Gosh, all good things, though, must come to an end. I'd like to thank our guests the Sojourner Truth team, including my dear sister, Margaret Prescott, our board operator for today, Gary Baca, and assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow.